please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. I do have the passage on the insert in your bulletin as well. We come now to one of the most important passages in the Bible. I try to reserve that kind of statement for these kinds of passages. And this passage requires uh, at least two sermons. Uh, Today I want to do an overview of what the passage describes, keying on the faith of Abraham showing itself in obedience and making the appropriate applications to our lives as well. But then I want to come back at this passage, Lord willing, next week and consider all the themes that are are revealed here. This passage sets uh, the tone and the storyline going forward. Now, by storyline, I don't mean it's a fictional story. I just mean um, the narrative that Moses gives about what happened. Um, and this, there's so much here. We'll want to look at it more closely next week, especially the theme of atonement that is so clearly laden in this passage. Um, what this passage introduces works to give us an understanding about the rest of what the Bible says. It's that important. Jewish and Christian scholars alike acknowledge the importance of this passage to the overall storyline of the Bible. Even religious scholars will admit that Genesis 22 is held, it should be held in high regard among ancient literature, among all literature, works of literature. It's a masterful, masterful work, a description by Moses, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to really describe one of the most gripping episodes in history. Additionally, and most relevant to us in the here and now, this is about God growing the faith of one of his children. We've seen Abraham as a bit of a prototype Christian, a picture of the Christian life to some degree, what he has walked through. So we'll look at this passage with that in mind as well. Hear now God's holy word. This is Genesis 22. I'll read the first 19 verses. The last verses really belong with the content of the next chapter. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I, will, I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we have come to a a most precious text. Please give us reverence and awe, along with careful attention to detail as we approach your holy word. O Lord, please strengthen our faith by this time spent in your word, especially in relationship to our, our lack of understanding about your will for the particulars of our lives. May we, like Abraham, Trust your promises even when we do not understand your ways. Indeed, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At surface level, we have a picture of a very mature faith expressing itself in obedience. We have God calling Abraham to do an incomprehensible task. And then we have Abraham trusting God and obeying God with this. We have another picture of the Christian life through a person and through the experience of Abraham. Now, there is certainly more thematically in this passage than that, and we'll return to this next week. But for our time together, let's look at Abraham's daunting experience. Verse 1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After these things. Now that refers to the long-awaited arrival of Isaac that's told about in the chapter just before. They'd waited years and years and years to see this promise fulfilled where the promised son who would become the head of a nation and from which that nation would come one who would bless the nations. All these things had worked together in the chapter before, but built upon all that we've been studying for some time now from chapter 12 of Genesis in the life of Abraham. We met Abraham back in chapter 12 when he said, go from your country, leave your family, go to a place that I will show you. And he had faith in God. Now, it was very immature at that point. And we see the ups and the downs in Abraham's life. With each down, though, God brings him up and builds his faith a little more. Now we come to chapter 22, like a bookend. This is a different Abraham we're dealing with from chapter 12. Some years ago, there was a movie called Castaway. It was with Tom Hanks. 
The storyline is pretty simple. He has a plane crash, and he ends up washing up on a deserted island. Now, when he washes up on the deserted island, he had been working in an office for some time. He was pretty sedentary, pretty out of shape, didn't know how to fend for himself. He looked pretty pathetic. He looked like me, basically. He gets on the island, and he has to figure out how to find food, how to make a fire. And the whole first part of that movie is him struggling just to crack a coconut open so he can live. He could barely even get a fire, and he celebrates when he finally does. Then the movie fast forwards several months. In the next scene is him standing on a raft that he had made with a spear. He's dressed basically like in a loincloth. He's lost 50 pounds. He's got grizzled look, and he's spearing fish like it was nothing. Genesis 12 is the soft Tom Hanks. Genesis 22 is the grizzled man of faith, Abraham now. Now he has walked with God for some time. He has seen what God can do. He sees that God keeps his promises. He knows he won't understand God's ways many times, but he knows who is God and who is not. And now he's walking this way. And he hasn't heard audibly from God and from some time we can imagine. And now we come to God speaking to him again when we assume Isaac is probably 12 or 13 years old. He has to be old and strong enough to carry up this wood up to Mount Moriah. So now Abraham is 112 years old about, and he's walked with God for some time. And we see in this account God testing his child Abraham in order to grow his faith further, to prove his faith, to demonstrate his faith, and to even build it stronger. And this is what God does in the life of believers. He will test us or prove us through trials and through challenges so that we grow to trust him more. In this account, we'll see the test itself in the first couple verses. Then we'll notice the actual obedience of Abraham, how it unfolds, and then God's provision and his reward in the final verses. Let's look first at this excruciating, but I would say faith-appropriate test. It's hard for us to imagine, but God sends something that is commensurate with the faith he had been building in Abraham at that moment. This is how God works. He, he sends these trials, these tests, in relationship to the faith he's given us thus far. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Now, after these things is the buildup to Abraham at this point, And he says that he will test him. Test here is something about proving Abraham's faith. It could be said he puts Abraham to the proof. He is going to prove Abraham. He's going to demonstrate something in Abraham through what he's calling him to do. Now notice that the author Moses tells us, the reader, that what God does here is a test. Abraham is not told this. Abraham just knows that his God has spoken to him again and has told him something. And he has been in this position before. Now the test is twofold. We think of the test for Abraham on the front level. He's got a difficult command that he has to follow. Will he follow it? Does he have faith to trust in God and follow it? But there's another aspect to tests. When I give my students a test, there's a nervousness I have with giving them. Now, I hope they've done their studies. I hope that they will demonstrate what they've learned. But I hope I taught them well. Because that's, the result of a test in a classroom is also a demonstration of the teacher's effectiveness. So God is going to test Abraham to demonstrate more than just Abraham's faith, to demonstrate God's provisions 
God's keeping of promises. There's more to this test than only Abraham, for sure. Please notice, he does not give Abraham this assignment as a new believer. He didn't do this in Genesis 12. He does it in Genesis 22 at age 112 after all he's been through. And now he gives, this, gives him this supreme test. God introduces occurrences and events in our lives to build our faith. But they are relative to the faith he's providing. He doesn't give his children circumstances or tests that they will fail as such, though they feel like we may be failing at the moment. He provides the faith necessary for the task he is assigning. Now, all of these truths about God sending trials could not have prepared Abraham for what God asks of him or commands him specifically. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. How could God ask or tell him such a thing? He'd already lost his first son as he was put out of the camp. An adult at that point, he only had one son now. It was Isaac. And he developed this relationship with Isaac over these 12 or 13 years. And now God is telling him to offer him as a sacrifice, something that is repulsive to the people of God, something the pagans did. How could God ask him to do this? But at this point in his walk of faith, Abraham isn't debating with God like he did over Sodom and Gomorrah. He has seen too much of God to think that he can change God's mind or that it would be good to change God's mind. He knows that God is too wise and too good to be distrusted. He knows the God of the universe will always do what's right, even though he doesn't understand this horrific command. What a long way Abraham has come with God. He's been walking with God for some 40 years by this point. Genesis 12, leave your country, go to the land I'm giving you. Genesis 22, go to the land of Moriah and take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham, because he believes God and believes in the promises of God about Isaac, he obeys, he complies. He's not the same person that he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, and you're not the same person from the time that you first came to Christ. Abraham had been led to the promised land by God. He had tried to use his own wisdom at various junctures. We've witnessed those, and they never went well. They hurt him and hurt others. When he lied about his wife twice, when they rushed ahead of God's plans and had Ishmael with Hagar, all of these caused great pain and turmoil. At 112, he knows that God is wiser than he is, even though he still doesn't understand what's being asked of him. And it had to shake him up to a devastating level. It had to rock his whole world to think about this. But Abraham at this point knew what it meant when God commanded him to do something. He also knew the promises about Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. There's no misunderstanding about this. God on multiple occasions by this time said, this is the son of promise. How could God violate his own promise to make a great nation from him if he would have him killed here? He has to be confused and conflicted by what he is being commanded. God's covenant was irrevocable. How could God go back on his promise? Then we come to verse 3 and see what the book of Romans calls the obedience of faith. Real faith producing obedience. 
Faith in God, even when we don't understand the circumstances, to then do what he tells us to do. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, I believe it would be a mistake to just go past verse 3 here and not recognize what it's displaying for us. We might think, okay, Abraham is so faithful, he's just going to do it. He gets up and he's going to go through the motions and get this done. He's so dutiful. He's so determined. There seems to be no emotion involved with this. But I'd say let's look at this passage again. I think there's no question that he is shook. He is shook in a way that he had never been shaken before. And this is Abraham who's been and seen a lot. If you look closely at the passage, catch some of the nuances. He must have been told to do this in the evening time. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I would submit that's because he probably didn't sleep a wink. Then what did he do as soon as the sun comes up? He saddles his donkey first. Now this is a very rich man who's 112 years old. He has many, many servants, hundreds of them probably. He doesn't have to saddle his own donkey. He doesn't have to cut his own wood. But he gets up and he saddles his donkey before he gets his son and the two servants will come with him. He took two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he, Abraham, cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Think of the order of things. If you're going to do this, you would get up. I would tell the servants to do it. But even if he's going to do it himself because he's, he's overwhelmed with the tasks that he's been called to, He's going to cut the wood first and get that ready, then saddle his donkey, then put it up. I would submit to you, and many scholars agree, that there is a disorderliness about what the patriarch is doing here because he is so shook about what he has to do. And he gets on the donkey, takes his servants, and he takes his son, and they start on a three-day journey from Beersheba, which is in the south, to move up to Moriah, which is more in the north. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. First of all, Moriah. We only know of this place in the Old Testament from Second Chronicles where we are told this is the same site where Solomon builds the temple eventually. You remember the importance of the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion. It's there where the sacrifices would be done perpetually for a thousand years, picturing the Messiah to come. That's where Moriah is. And so they're going towards Moriah. And as they get closer, before they go the final stretch, look again at the words of faith that Abraham speaks to the young men. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And here is the statement of faith. And come again to you. He anticipates that God will not relinquish his promise. He will not take it back. Isaac's the son of promise. He's got to come back with me. If, if God's calling me to sacrifice him, then he'll raise him again. He will not go back on his promise. Confused conflicted, tormented even. But he says, by faith to the servants, we're going to come back. 
The author of Hebrews captures this in chapter 11. Listen to what the author of Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the promise. He, or he Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Certainly, Abraham could not reconcile the command to sacrifice Isaac with the promise about Isaac. But he trusted God and obeyed and kept moving forward to do what God told him to do. Hebrews says he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. If he does sacrifice him, God could raise him from the dead. Remember, this is the Abraham who learned to look to the city with foundations, not to the earthly city because it was going to be fading. He was moved in obedience knowing there was a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new Canaan that would come in the same way with his son, that there would be a resurrection. He believed all these things, yet he's conflicted. Again, wherever you are in your walk of faith, God is undoubtedly calling you to believe things that are difficult, that the world may be saying is foolish. But you know they're true. God's revealed them. He saved you. You know you're saved. You know you're in Christ. So certainly these things that he says in his word, though the world may mock them, they're true. We need to believe them. It's tough. People are saying you shouldn't. But we move forward knowing this is true. We believe in him. And by faith, we obey him even when we don't understand the message that's being given. Or it doesn't comport with what's popular. So he goes towards Moriah with Isaac. Look back at verse 6 of our text. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now you can't escape this imagery. And this is what we'll unpack more next week, Lord willing. The wood that he'll be sacrificed on, Isaac, the son, has to take on himself and take up the hill. You can't escape the picture of the father giving up his only son and the son carrying the wood that will be the place where he lays and dies. For Isaac to carry the wood, we assume, as I've mentioned several times, that he had to be probably 12 or 13. And at this point, he doesn't seem to be pushing back because he knows sacrifices are done. He trusts his father's good intentions. But at some point now, as he's walking up, he turns to his father, verse 7, and says to Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, and I want us to pay very close attention to the wording, it all matters. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now you know as the story goes, a ram is provided as a substitute for Isaac, that's important. But do we see a lamb yet in this picture? No. This becomes a driving feature of what will develop in the Old Testament on into the New Testament, and ultimately in the person of our Savior Jesus, who's recognized as the Lamb of God. This is what needs further focus. You can see why I'll spend another sermon on this. But for now, recognize this, this very human father-son interchange and the father trying not to lie to his son, telling him the very truth, that God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Isaac's not, not dumb. He's thinking through this as he analyzes it more. He knows the life of his 
father and his father's faith. In fact, we could say that Isaac shares the faith of his father in this process. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He provides all of it. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. This would be with stones. And then he laid the wood in order and bound then Isaac. At some moment, there was, uh, there was the realization that Isaac had to submit to what his father was asking him or calling him to do. He's believing in his God, father's good intentions and it wouldn't end in death. Or he's resolved to die if his father stipulates. At some level, Isaac here shares his father's faith. And then verse 10, in unfathomable form, when I think of this kind of thing with my own child, imagine this. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. True faith will produce obedience. That's what we see on display in the life of Abraham. Obedience gives proof that one has this faith. Obedience, in this sense, then proves faith. Works, actions, prove that we have really been given this faith by God. This is what James is trying to explain in James 2 when, when some people are saying um, faith is just a simple um, you just assent to something. It doesn't necessarily show itself. It's just if I say I believe it, it's like an easy believism idea or this idea that you can say that and then go about your life with no change. And James is saying, no, that's not true because you need works to justify the faith you have. It doesn't, it's not using justify in exactly the same way as making right with God. It's proving that the faith you have is real. This is what James means by saying, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I have faith, God's given me faith, I'll prove it to you by the things that I do because they're empowered by God in the faith he gives. That's Abraham. He's able to do this incredible thing because he trusts in the God who has commanded him. Then James says in James 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now we already know how he was justified before God because it says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's repeated multiple times. But we only know that that belief was true because he obeys God in this instance. By God's design, this was meant to test, to prove Abraham's faith was real. How do we know it was real? He did what God called him to do. James says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed, made clear by his works. Yes, this, is, this faith that he claims is true. This is a declaration for us all to see this. Abraham obeys God because he believes in God. His belief is proved or showed or demonstrated or manifested by the obedience that he displays. This brings us to the response, you might say, of God in this whole instance. This is by his design to bring Abraham through this and to then renew covenant with Abraham. Verse 11, you remember we left with him getting ready to slaughter his son at this tense moment. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. You notice that's Abraham's normal response. Here I am when, they, when God calls to him, even when his son did. 
I'll bet you this was the quickest, fastest, here I am he had ever said in his life. Here I am, praying that God would intervene. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, important point here. Do you remember back in the beginning of Genesis when God would speak as though he was a person witnessing it, and he'd say to Adam and Eve, what have you done? Who's given this to you and you've eaten? Now, God knows it. He's speaking anthropomorphically as a person in the narrative so that we, the reader, can sense what's happening here. It's not like he, he's surprised by this or this shocks him or, oh, my, I was worried, Abraham, you wouldn't do it. It's a demonstration and a narrative form to show the faithfulness of God working through Abraham to bring him through this moment. The test that God gives proves Abraham's faith. The faith he had confessed before, the faith that Abraham demonstrated in the initial promise of all these things he then renews, now it's on full display. A gift from God, provided by God in all ways. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament commentator, said, the test, instead of breaking Abraham, brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. It was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now this is another theme that we got to explore more. This is substitutionary atonement. Substituted for Isaac is the ram, which is a picture of Christ for us. So when Abraham does this in his great joy, he says in verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, which is a general blanket statement about all that that God does for us. And if you think of this story, he's provided every aspect of it for the benefit of Abraham's being built up in faith and for the benefit of us giving praise to God when we see how God works like this, this demonstration through the life of Abraham. This has been a buildup for months for us to see Abraham at this moment. We've all felt with Abraham. We've all identified with Abraham. And to see him come to this moment where he has this faith that's so deep that he does this thing, it gives all of us a bit of hope about whatever you're facing tomorrow. Because it's big for you, whatever it is. I'm not diminishing it. For you, something's coming this week or this year that's hard for you to interpret. Lord, why is this in my life? Why do you have this? And he's calling you to trust at the most base level in his salvation for you, which guarantees you eternal life. And then from there, he promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises to provide for you. And you can rest in that even though you go into something that you don't understand. You don't get what God is thinking. But you know he's good and he's true. And we've seen it worked out in the life of someone like Abraham, who we all can relate with on the downs and on the ups. It goes on as God now renews a promise already given. And look at the language carefully because what you have happening now is a a proving of the faith that was the basis for the first promise. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply. The additional of I will surely now. You have shown this. You have authenticated. You have made clear that this is legitimate and that your faith is legitimate to grasp 
the things that I have promised you that will benefit on into the future from the initial covenant I gave you, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 112-year-old Abraham, yes, you've only got one son, but there are going to be so many of your descendants. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He obeyed his voice because he believed in God. His obedience proves he really believed. And God authenticates, renews, confirms covenant with Abraham at this moment as he repeats himself with fervor, with emphasis now. His faith, Abraham's faith, was altogether independent of his, his obedience, resting simply on the promises of God. But it caused him to obey God's commands at this critical moment. He trusted God, therefore he obeyed him. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. You know who's not mentioned it? Oh, I just can't wait to find out in heaven. Sarah. Do you wonder if Sarah knew any of this happened? Wouldn't be the first husband that didn't mention all the details before he went off. But what a story to tell her when he comes back. In this account, we see that God tests his children in order to grow their faith, to grow your faith, and to manifest his faithfulness, and so that we know he is the God who provides. Remember, the test is twofold. It proves something about the student, but it also proves something about the teacher. And God manifests what is true about him once again in the life of Abraham, his child. I think as we enter a new year, by God's providence, this is a perfect passage for us to begin with. In general, to the church, to believers, God will be calling us to, once again, follow his word. Follow the clarity of his word. Stick on mission to be clear declarers and preachers and ambassadors for the gospel, the true gospel. And to follow what he tells us to do, no matter what the world says around us. That will be hard. But we believe God and we trust him, even if others say this isn't what you should do. And again, for you personally, there might, there's probably something very specific that's stressing you out right now, that's giving you tension about what, what lies ahead. And God is, by this episode, reminding you uh, to seek his guidance and his word and follow his word. Weigh whatever it is you're looking at according to his word. Follow his word, and he will give you what you need to obey him in this. And he'll grow you deeper as a result. Finally, I will leave you with these wise words from R.S. Candlish. Uh, he is a Presbyterian scholar who wrote 100 plus years ago a commentary on Genesis, and it's superb. And he says it this way It mattered not to Abraham that by sacrificing his only son, he was to all appearance sacrificing his hope for a, of a future people and a future Savior to spring from him through that son. It mattered not that what God had commanded seemed most inconsistent with what God had promised, and that, according to human judgment, by obeying the command, he was making utterly void the promises. 
He presumed not to question the wisdom of the truth of God. He simply confided in his faithfulness and love, being well assured that God would reconcile all difficulties in the end and justify his own ways and accomplish his own word. May that be true of the people of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. As we enter a new year, a new chapter, a new era of life, we trust in your wise hand and your perfect ways. Oh Lord, even when we do not understand your ways, we trust in your wisdom and we ask for you to build our trust in your wisdom and your purposes. We do believe that you will give us the faith necessary to obey you. For your glory, I pray this in Christ. Amen.